you a fan of this podcast? Do you wish there was even more juicy content for you to sink your ears into? Well, there is. You can become a premium member of this podcast for $5.99 a month and get full access to an archive of over 50 bonus episodes. Additionally, we release a bonus episode every single month. That's a ton of extra content, including my personal interior design diaries, extra tips, my talking about trends, and so much more. Additionally, you'll be keeping us on the airwaves each and every week because your premium membership money goes directly back to making this podcast amazing. Check us out at affordableinteriordesign.com. Click on podcast to learn more and to become a premium member today. high-end designer or a lot of money to get a luxe look be your own interior designer this is affordable interior design the podcast here's your host betsy Hellman. hi everybody back with you for another exciting week uh it is snowing as my son says mom i think this qualifies as a blizzard yes it is blizzarding here in the new york area but luckily, our guest is joining us from a place that's only getting rain. Caitlin Callahan is here. She owns Decorative Block and Associates, and she's going to tell us all we want to know about designing for hotels. I have questions. It's so different than residential or either other commercial projects that I work on. So I cannot wait to learn more. Caitlin, thanks for joining us this week. Oh, thanks, Betsy. As always, great to talk to you. Nice to see you as well. So we are getting we are getting a little bit of snow here, but it's mostly rain. I'm outside of Boston right now. Same coast, different, yeah. different seasonal weather issues right now. Right. Yeah. Well, luckily, I had my husband bring all my podcast gear home last night so I could be here in the home office talking to you. But let's tell everybody where we met because we go way back, Caitlin. I feel like I've known you for years and years. Um, yes, Betsy and I are members of Strategic Coach, and um, that's an entrepreneurial coaching group that um, we meet in Chicago four times a year. And through that, we've developed a friendship in our own little kind of board of directors of five um, group members that we all support and um, act as sounding boards for each other's businesses. So. And for the most part, we're all in different industries, which right. I find is so fascinating from public speaking to HR. Uh, but I'm rarely in a mastermind with somebody in my same industry. So I think you're the first interior designer I've ever been in a, like a mastermind group with. And you would think that there might be competition or something like that, but it's amazing how different our industries are. Exactly. I have so many questions for you. I can't wait for you to tell us more. So tell us a little bit about what your company does. Well, I think one of the uh, fallacies is, and it often confuses people, is they think I am an interior designer, but I am not an interior designer. My clients are interior designers, and that is who I spend most of my time working with and working for. So people will often say to me, oh, you design hotels? And I'm like, well, 
not really, but I do supply all of the product that goes into hotel guest rooms. And there's a fair amount of design that goes on there, kind of in the interpretation process, making something that is designed for residential work within a hotel situation, be it how it wears or how it performs or the ability to scale it a thousand times over. So so you mean they might show you something and say, I'm really looking for something like this. This is my idea for the new lounge chairs at the Marriott. How can you make this vision happen for me? Exactly. Uh-huh. Exactly. So it, like with everything, it all starts with good design, and then it needs to go through the hotelification of meeting all of the brand standards and performing in, in a hotel guest room. So lots of times it starts with furniture or fabric, and they'll say, oh, we have, you know, here's something, it's, you know, $200 a yard, it's 100% wool, it's all these things. And most people, I tell people that I make... um pig's ears out of silk purses. I like reverse fancy things. <laughs> so um, you'll say that aspirational piece from like a high-end company. Right. And then you'll say that's not commercial grade. Right. There's no way that can fail for a hotel. What are hotels looking for? Like what are those rules? Well, I think, you know, it's a lot of it's driven by the brand standard. So obviously something that is for a courtyard is very different than something that's for a four seasons. But I do think there are some standards that go across the boards. And that is in fabric, at least it's durability. So it has a double rub test and residential, they consider appropriate double rubs, which is just a machine that um, grades back and forth on the fabric to see how long it takes for it to pill and wear and seems to come apart. In residential design, that's 15,000 double rubs is the standard. In hospitality design, that's 35,000 double rubs. And there are brands that require 50,000 double rubs. So that kind of makes for a difference. But of course, the designer doesn't want to give up that lush look, the aesthetic. So it's kind of, you know, trading out fibers, maybe using polyester instead of rayon, never like never using silk or things like that. So I've been in this business for a long time, though. And what's really nice is that um, man-made fibers have come a really, really long way. Polyester used to just be slick and slippery. And now the nuance of polyester is unbelievable that you can't really necessarily tell that, Mm -hmm. you know, this is, Hey, this is made of plastic. So, (laughs) right. But it needs to reform that way. So now, you know, when you're talking about those standards, that double rub test, is that highest level something we might think of like Sumbrella? Well, Sumbrella is interesting because it performs in different ways, but it's a solution dyed acrylic And it doesn't have high double rub ratings because acrylic pills very easily. So whereas you can clean it with bleach and you can get it wet and things like that, it doesn't have a real high double rub. So when I do outdoor fabrics, I tend to use a um, polypropylene, which has a much higher rub rate on it. It doesn't pill as easy as like an acrylic would pill. I want to take one of those machines when I'm like clothes shopping. Right. Because all my sweaters pill. Yeah. Yeah. And I just want. That's a combat. You know what? That It's funny because my daughter is always calling me on 
looking at labels saying, what do you think of this? A lot of that has to do with a combination of fiber, obviously acrylic pills, but, you know, putting um, anything like wool and rayon together, just the difference in the fibers, they're just going to rub up against each other and make those little balls or cat. When you buy cashmere, you know, you buy something that's like, Oh, it's cashmere. And then it looks like junk in about a year because it's all short fibers that aren't twisted nicely together, really tightly long fibers. It's just short little junky fibers mm. and they kind of untwist and make little balls. So yeah. These are really, you know, tips that you learn that apply across the board yeah. from interior design to apparel. Exactly. I love it. Well, and it's such a different thought process. You know, at Affordable Interior Design, we go with what's in stock. Right. Maybe there's 20 fabrics available. And we're looking at it for residential use. So, of course, we're thinking about durability with it being a performance fabric for a cat's hairball. Right. But we're not thinking about lots of different people being in this space. Exactly. Are there other guidelines, you know, besides fabric? Yeah. What are they looking for, like dressers? So for um, seating, there's something we call the 300-pound test. And that is for a 300-pound person to like plop their butt down in something from a standing position and the legs not to splay out from underneath them. So in a residential chair, you might have something that has no stretchers, just, you know, four lovely little legs that then would have to be reinterpreted to have more support in it. And that's, that's, you know, obviously you don't want your chairs to fall apart, but it's also a liability issue. You know, you don't know what people are doing in these hotel rooms, so you can't, have things that are going to fall apart and people be hurt and you be sued either. So that's a thing. And with case goods, which are like dressers and desks, um, bathroom vanities, nightstands, headboards, we say that those pieces need to withstand two bodies in motion. And that's where I'm just going to leave that. So, yeah. Got it. Yeah. Got it. Yes. No, I, I remember because we were a strategic coach. We had a breakout session or something, and you told me this two bodies in motion rule. Mm -hmm. And first of all, I think that should apply even, even to residential spaces. Mm -hmm. Let's be clear. But I think in hotels, they should do like three plus bodies or more. We just don't know what's happening. Yeah, we don't know what's going on in there. And we do not want to know what's going on in there. There's a lot of liability. I was staying in a hotel for strategic coach. Well, it was a motel, let's be clear, um, and found a can of cheese whiz under the bed. This is not a place that Caitlin's company had anything to do with, but I did commiserate with her afterwards. I said, I just found spray cheese under the bed in my motel. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was a housekeeping miss on that one. But, you know, that's interesting that that I say housekeeping miss because what people don't really understand in hotel design as well as one of the final sign offs on design is from the housekeeping staff. So we'll do really? yep, we'll do a model room and then the head of housekeeping will come through and determine how long it's going to take to clean that room with like, oh, you have two shelves underneath that nightstand that needs to be dusted. You have six pillows that need to be moved. You have a duvet that I have to crawl in and out of. You have, um, you know, this kind of balance that needs to be vacuumed because then that determines they set a time on how long they think it'll take to clean that room. And that determines the rate of housekeeping. So if you say a housekeeper has like a seven and a half hour shift, if they have 
a room that takes them 35 minutes to clean, they might be able to do 11 rooms in a day. If they have a room that takes them 45 minutes to clean, they're only going to be able to do nine rooms in a day. So anything that's like super high touch in hotels that aren't um, like say a Four Seasons or Ritz or Waldorf where you have turndown service where housekeeping right. is getting in there a couple times during the day where they're able to maintain things. But your standard hotel, they don't want all that stuff because – yeah, what about my cheese whiz motel? What yeah, I think. <laughs> well, obviously, maybe they only do under the bed every third customer. So, yeah. <laughs> I think it was a full Sprite and a partial cheese whiz. Uh. And now it's time for a quick commercial break. Do you love this podcast? Do you wish you could learn even more? Well, we have an online class bundle. Our online class bundle is comprised of three online classes, beautifying your home for less, styling your home, and the fundamentals of feng shui. Each one of those three classes is between 30 and 45 minutes long and chock filled with visuals and tips, things that will help you to style your own space or help out with other spaces. Additionally, with the pack of three classes, you get an autographed copy of my book, Affordable Interior Design. You get all of that for only $99. Once again, that's the three online classes as well as the book for only $99. You just go to affordableinteriordesign.com slash classes. Once again, affordableinteriordesign.com slash classes to buy your bundle today. And if one of those classes sounded intriguing, but maybe you already have my book or some of the other topics are not of interest, you can buy the classes individually at that site as well. Each class is $40. So head over to affordableinteriordesign.com slash classes to get your bundle or your online class today. What are like the major no-nos of designing for a hotel? Like, could you never have a two-shelf nightstand? Well, you could if you had housekeeping where they wanted it, you know, where they were like, that's not a problem. We want that extra. I think depending on the brands, like not a lot of mirrored finishes, that's hard because that's mm. fingerprints. Um, some high gloss lacquers, you know, depends on like where you put that, if it's kind of low enough down where it's going to get hit by a um, vacuum cleaner in the vac vacuuming process, things like that. Um, anything that's in the bathroom, if you're doing vanities, we usually put like stainless steel. It's usually made out of marine grade plywood. And then we have like stainless steel ferrules on the bottom of vanities because it's a wet mop area and you're, you can't have mops hitting it. So you have to really think not only how is the customer using it, but then how is the room serviced as well? So. That is so interesting. Yeah. And so it sounds like you not only work with the designer, but then also the fabricator of like furniture. So you're not just selecting pieces from a hotel friendly catalog. You might be making these things from scratch. Everything I do is know, custom. Everything. Really? Yeah, everything I do is custom. Really? And I think that is one. I've been hanging out for three years and there's <laughs> things I do not know. Hey, my whole family doesn't understand what I do for a living, Betsy. So three years in, you're, you're, you're a lot more ahead. Just put on this podcast, Caitlin. Yeah. 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 At Thanksgiving, just repeat the playlist. Yes, yeah. exactly. So yeah, everything I do is custom. 
Um, there's really nothing off the shelf. Some of the fabrics I do are off the shelf, but most everything needs to be tweaked in some way or another. And one of the things I also do, though, is I develop brand standards with hotels. Like I work with Hyatt and I do all the Hyatt fabric for um, Hyatt Place. So that's kind of one of those things where it's in every Hyatt Place. Some of the companies I work with do a lot of Marriott program guest rooms. You know how you go and you stay at a hotel and it's like, oh, it's the same hotel, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, kind Mm -hmm. of what to expect. Well, those are brand design standards that they just roll out because that just turns a hotel faster and is better for the investor without having to do all this little, you know, ditzy change this, change this. They just want to get their heads in beds and get the revenue. Well, I have a question about this though. If you're picking like the brand standards, picking the fabrics that will be used throughout, picking the wood stain that's used throughout or whatever, aren't you a designer? This sounds like design to me. Well, my client has the final say. I bring them the opportunities, but I'm, I bring them the solutions, but I'm not the only one bringing them the solutions. So then they choose. And then it, then from there, it goes into the purchasing process where, Maybe I've developed some case goods for the guest room. Well, then that goes out to bid to three or four different manufacturers. And pricing is obviously a huge driver as well. So kind of understanding what the market will bear before you get too far down the road is a good way to manage at least my own expectations. So, yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, how does that trajectory look from like the process standpoint of designing for a hotel well the timeline you mean per se or well just maybe not the well the timeline could be interesting too but just from the time that they decide they want a new look Mm -hmm. for all their rooms to the time that it happens of course I know there's a lot in between but just that bird's eye view what does that even look like so I mean the you know the brand or the owner comes out and they say they want to redesign that's probably you know, from initial design, and it's usually the big concept, not, you know, the designer just pulls their wish list of lovely things and presents that. And that's usually, a you know, a couple months process. And then they get people like me involved in trying to make their design real. But um, mm-hmm. then there's usually a model process and that adds, um, I want to say, depends on if they're doing furniture or not, that can add anywhere from like eight to 16 weeks to the process. And then from there, and I think this is the biggest thing that I always laugh with my clients about, oh, the documentation for hotels is unbelievable. The process of writing specifications is so detailed that you have to, every single room, like it's not stacked on top of each other. So say an old hotel like the Plaza in New York might be... 250 rooms, but it has 155 different room conditions. And all of those conditions have to be taken into consideration. So it's like, oh, sofa number 107 doesn't fit in these three rooms. So now we need sofa number 108. So it's all of that kind of pre-documentation so that after, so manufacturing is correct and that you know, the installation works. Well, it's usually a 24-month period from the first twinkle of the eye until the hotel opens, if it's not a new construction. That said, 
if you're if it's a brand like if it's a courtyard and you're a new developer and you're like hey i want to make this into a courtyard because everything is preloaded and all you need to do is say i want the yellow scheme or the blue scheme or whatever then that's a much shorter from first twinkle to open period and that's why people go with that because it just moves things along right, right. they can just plug and play yeah maybe modifying floor plans, right. but still get the blue scheme right. for small rooms, right. the blue scheme for right. cameras. Exactly. Like all the heavy list, lifting has been done. So, yeah. Right. Right. And everything, because then there's the other issue of like flame retardants, yes, exactly. I would imagine. Mm-hmm. So then, well, that, you know, it's, that's another great thing about polyesters too, is they've, when I first got in this business, everything was cotton at the window and, or silk, and we flame treated it. And, you know, all of that stuff is so toxic and also bioaccumulative, which means that, you know, we've just been absorbing it forever. So the fact that you now have really nice looking polyesters that people can't tell if they're silk or cotton or whatever without, you know, giving them a real touch that are inherently or intrinsically flame proof, then they just, you know, come off the loom that way, which is great. And then we don't have to worry about the coatings, the toxic chemicals. But there's a big thing going on now with stain treating and, you know, Mm. that these carbon neutral finishes is what people have been pushing because all of that stuff is super toxic too. And, you know, you think, oh, I can't, you know, I want to protect what I have. Absolutely. But the thing is, if you, if you're using a polyester fabric, it can't suck in a stain like a cotton would because it doesn't absorb things. So if you're using a cotton mm. or a rayon or viscose or linen, that'll actually pull the stain in. Whereas a polyester, it'll just kind of sit on top and you can just wash it out. It doesn't actually become part of the fiber like a stain on a natural mm-hmm. fiber would be. So, hmm. yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. You know what I hate? Just a sidebar. Because this is my show. I can talk about something I hate just as a sidebar. I hate viscous. Viscose. Yes. I hate and, it. I hate it. Uh, how do you feel about it? Well, I have a, like a billion opinions on it, but let me just give you the short, <laughs> the short run on viscous. Let's talk the dirt on viscous. Okay. First thing is it is... Um, hydrophilic. So if you use, it reacts to the relative humidity in a space. So if you have it. Oh, let's tell people what it is first. I, you know, I went right into it because I was just feeling it, but tell us the formal definition because I only have Of what, viscose? Okay. So Mm -hmm. viscose is basically rayon and rayon is a fiber that's made with cotton and wood linters. So just cotton fluff and then wood pulp. And it was invented, I think, in for World War II as artificial silk and used um, to make parachutes and things like that. So it was kind of like a, it's the first like real synthetic fiber. And it, it has a lot of uses. You see it in ready to wear all the time. Yeah. yeah. Um, And it is in home furnishing fabrics and it's kind of lovely and soft and can be very lofty. But at the window, if you use it in drapery, like in a residential application, you'll notice like when it's damp out or humid in the room or the air conditioning comes on, the drapes start kind of bagging and stretching because they're absorbing the moisture and getting wet and pulling down. 
And then when the air, when the heat comes back on, they shrink back up again because it has this kind of memory based on humidity. And you'll see that in seeding, what I call, I have no other way to call this, but butt bag from when someone's been sitting on something too long and it's like stretched and baggy. It's the heat of the body stretching the rayon in, in the seating fabric. So most brand standards in hotels, it's like no more than 15% rayon, viscose, Bemberg. There's a lot of other patented rayon names. They just don't use it for that reason. So. I really hate it. I normally see it in rugs that are trying to emulate the shimmering silk, silk right. effect. Right. And the thing that I find is that even spilling water on a viscose yep. rug will stain yep. it forever. Right. Like it will not come out. So I just get so frustrated because online it is so appealing. When you see it in person, it does sometimes rival silk right. rugs. Like I've gone into high-end rug stores and seen a silk rug and then seen a similar viscose option at a retailer. And I'm like, oh my gosh, they look so great. And viscose feels so great. And then you spill one glass yeah. of water. I'm a spiller, Caitlin. We we know each other well, but you may not know that about me. I'm a spiller. Yeah. And then it's ruined. Well, I think one of like, the great things about viscose rugs and why people love them is they have a great foot feel. You know, they feel great barefoot. Mm -hmm. And I think they're a good bedroom rug for that reason. Like something that's not high traffic, high drink. You know, but I actually had a friend who had speak for yourself, Caitlin. Yeah. Speak yeah. for yourself. My bedroom is high drink. Yeah. We need three bodies in motion. Right. Yeah. I hope so, Betsy. <laughs> <laughs> that was really Yeah, funny. exactly. So but the third body is oh, a yeah. dog who's like jumping. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But I think I have a friend who had a custom viscose rug made for her for like a hallway or something. She's like, I spill what? It's like a yellow rug. She said, I spill water on it, it turns gray. It makes no sense whatsoever. So she moved into her bedroom and she's like much happy with it in there. I'm a wool, I'm a wool rug person all the way. So I do find that sometimes those can be really itchy, like a hundred percent yeah. wool rug. Like if you're playing with children or playing with the dog, you know, and you're wrestling, I'll get up and I'll have red patches on my arm. From the well, wool rug. do you think that from the weave? Are you talking about like a cut pile or are you talking about? You know, it's like a crate and yeah. barrel rug, like a crate and barrel. And, and not all the time. I do find that different types of wool rugs do different mm -hmm. things. But I had a wool rug from Overstock. I had these brand new babies in Park Slope. They'd roll on these rugs. I'd be playing with them. And we both have these huge red patches on our skin. That is so weird. Just like, just like we'd worn a wool sweater. That is so weird. Yeah, and I don't have sensitive skin. So anyway, fun fact. Um, but you know, I want to I want to take it back okay. a little bit. How did you even get into this? You know, because I actually wasn't the impression you were an interior yes. designer. As well. Oh no! Oh no! No! <laughs> I have no idea because you really must be like their best buddy. You're really making them look yeah, good that is... or telling them how to bring their vision to life in a way that will get acceptance by these. Yeah, companies. I'm a, my. I look at myself as a solution. You know, that's kind of what I try to provide and walk. And because I do this all the time, I help people write specs, you know, be it for how to write a drapery spec, how to write a roller shade spec, how to write a furniture spec, because specification is huge because you want what you, your vision is. And so you have to, you know, call out every little widget to make sure who's ever reading that draws it correctly and gets you what you need. But um, how I get into this is a little bit crazy. I'm a, um, 
textile conservator. I have a master's in conservation and restoration, and I thought I would go to work in a museum and, you know, spend my life slaving over some, you know, tribal robe, analyzing stains and, you know, recreating darning things to make them perfect again. So I don't know. I did that. And I decided that I would do that again when I'm 80 because it's really, it's really laborious. And, um, I didn't find it that fascinating at all. And I really like business. So I went to work for a company called Scalamandre and they are, um, I'm not sure who owns them now, but at the time they were this super high-end residential line, but they had a um, restoration division and they were restoring historic houses like the State Department and the White House was my client, historic Newport, all those mansions, things like that. So I could use my textile background in working with their committees and understanding textile history to kind of redevelop and reweave things that they already had on site. And then we would go to mills in Europe, some of the original mills, we'd like do all the color analysis, all that kind of stuff just to... That sounds amazing. It is. It was fun because it was a lot of kooky people like museum people, which I really love, but it was also driven by like an end date. So it wasn't just going on and on and on. So there was a start and a closure to a um, project, but it was, it was fun, like going in and out of all of those places, the back entrance to the, or the front entrance to every mansion in Newport and looking in people's drawers and, you know, I love that yeah. stuff. You know, I went on, we go to Rhode Island and every year we take at least two uh-huh. home tours on our vacations because I just can't get enough of that stuff. It's amazing. Uh, and I always thought, you know, the knowledge of what's in a textile, what era something is from, what exact Pantone color that is, all of that I always think is nice to have. But for my business, it doesn't help the bottom right. line at all. It doesn't help my customer at all. We're not doing anything custom. But I always thought if I had another side of my brain I just want to know all the history of the fabrics. I want to know every little thing about it. It's like, I want your brain to be in my brain and live alongside. Yes. <laughs> live alongside. But I could just take you out for drinks and ask you more yes. about this. So there we go. Well, that is really fascinating. Yeah. So when I, when I, when I went that. to work for them and I was doing um, restoration stuff, another job opened with them to be selling on the road. And my first hotel client was Four Seasons because I worked in um, Eastern Canada as well. So that's how I got into the hotel thing, um, working with them. And what I really, really love about hotel design is it's great design. It's driven by great design. And there's a lot of process. I'm a good process person. And there is an end date to it. And it's not personal. So you can put something together and, you know, the guest isn't calling in and saying, hey, um, I don't like the tassel on this lamp. You know, it's not that. It's just. But don't you have, isn't that like head honcho at the Four Seasons being like, I don't like the tassel on that lamp. Or do they just want to get it? Well, I mean. Every obviously everything is like a negotiation, you know, like the tassel might go because people will steal them, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, but it's usually not, it usually isn't driven by like, I don't like this beyond once the original design has been accepted by the owner or the brand or it just is 
once the overview has been yeah. greenlit, they won't pick the details right. unless it's not right. Practical. And they get that's why they do model rooms is so before they scale it 500 times or 200 times or a thousand times, they realize, oh, yeah, we like this flow. We like how this sits. We like how this looks or this is a good scale or, you know, this says what I want this room to say kind of thing. So, yeah. It's insurance policy. Right, right. And kind of that testing ground. Do you ever get to go on site to those models? I do, actually. Um, I don't get, people always say to me, oh, are you, you know, like I'm I'm working in a job in Paris right now. Well, obviously I'm not going there right now, but I don't go get to go see everything. But lots of times I'll go, I'll do walkthroughs, um, especially with furniture. I'll meet a designer down on site after a model room to do like a walkthrough of you know, let's fix this. How do you want to change this? This kind of thing. It just expedites. Yeah. Yeah. And then also I see a lot, I work in Boston and Chicago. So if there are any of the people who I work with doing projects in those cities and something's gone awry, they'll be like, can you stop over at XYZ and like walk them through this kind of thing. So Interesting. Well, and so you talked about the best part of the job, but what's the most challenging part? What's that part that you're like, oh, this, you know, you have to have chutzpah if you want to enter into this element of the job? Um, I think the most challenging part of the job for designers is documentation. I think the most challenging part of the job for me, and I've been doing it for a while, so I get this is I can work really hard on something for two years and then not get the order, you know, something happens. So, and since I'm kind of paid that way, it's like, whoop, you know, sunk cost doesn't go this. So. So you don't get paid unless they move forward with the mm-hmm. design. Unless, like not even to help them conceptualize. No, it's part of the service of the product. So if they don't end up buying the product. I do not get paid. So. And then does the designer not get paid? Well, well? I mean, they've bought someone's product. But I, the designer, obviously, you know, they're hired. Sometimes they're just hired for conceptual. Sometimes they're hired through the model room. Sometimes they're hired for full rollout. You know, they base how they build their fees in there. So although it, when I used to work in London, they would do these design competitions where they would have like three and four firms doing a competition to get a project and they were not paid for the competition. I was like, this is crazy, guys. So, yeah. yeah. Well, does that in turn mean that you weren't paid or because they bought inventory? Oh, no, no. This was just to get the job. So it'd be like someone coming to Affordable Interiors and going to West Elm and going to someone else and someone else and saying, hey, give me your best shot. I'm not going to give you, I'm not going to pay you only if I decide to use you in the end. Well, that's how, that's how some online you know, like Havenly designers submit a proposal. And if your proposal gets picked, you get paid. But if it doesn't, you don't. So it's kind of like, thank you. No, thank you. Um, But everybody, you know, there's a time and a place for everything and everyone. But I just think that that is difficult. But I get it. But I, you know, I can judge. I know who I work well with and who who to partner with and when things are going to go sideways really fast. I'm just like... Yeah, I got to go. So, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, it would make you really analyze that designer to say, could they get the ball across right. the line? Do I want to pitch my wagon and my time to this person? Right. 
you know, if I don't feel they're going to get the contract well, or be able to push this idea well, through? And then also it depends on the purchasing company too. I have some great purchasing relationships, people I've worked with for 25 years who they're like, oh yeah, we like working for you because you make it easy for us. We'll, you know, let's partner with this. And then there's others where like the um, case goods manufacturer I represent does very high end stuff. So if it's a super price driven project, it's like, I, no, I'm not going to, I don't even going to bother with this because I know I'm not going to get there, you know, because if all you're looking for is price, right. I'm not your person. So yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And you don't have resources to right. tap into. To get you the cheaper yeah. version of this. Exactly. So. Right. That is yeah. so interesting. This is a whole nother arena. You know, interior design is so multifaceted right? and there's so many opportunities for people who are interested in design to break in to the industry. It's just a matter of where's right. your fit and what you love to do. So I love that your hook was fabric. Mm -hmm. And now look at all the different things that you're an right. expert in just based on one foray into fabric and then yeah, opening this door, this proverbial hotel room door. I know. So and I got into fabric because I was buying vintage clothes forever and I wanted to know about costumes. And I went to the University of Wisconsin for graduate school and they had like a huge collection and they had were really tied in with their theater department. And I thought, oh, I was working in State Historical Society. I'll learn all this stuff about costumes. But then I got totally hooked in textile science of all things <laughs> and like went that way. So, yeah. Well, I think there's also a lesson there in following your passion and making it what you want to be. You realized you loved fabrics, but you also loved entrepreneurship. Right. And to be able to say, hey, you know, I've tried out these different roles, whether it be a museum or at a theater department, and I see things I like and things I don't like. How can I take that and make my right. own path? Exactly. What, what job opportunity allows me to be my own boss, work in fabrics? Right. What does that look exactly. like? Exactly. I, I couldn't have made, I couldn't have made this yeah. up, seriously. <laughs> I, I really... I'm like, oh, this works pretty well for me. Thank you. So, well, I have so many more questions, uh, but we'll have to save it part for, two. you know, a time. Yeah. Yeah. Either part two. I would like to take some deep dives. You know, I've always said in my free time, I'd love to learn about the weave of everything, all these different details that we just don't utilize. But it's nice to have that background. And I think not only does it give you confidence, but like, I didn't even know about this double rub yeah. test, right? You can speak in a different way that's really compelling. And I work in a lot of commercial spaces, but again, it's all retail. We're not doing anything from scratch. But even knowing how the process works is just kind of illuminating when we're thinking about the items that are even available at, say, Wayfair. What kind of tests right. has that gone through? You know, what kind of spec sheet does that have? I'm just intrigued. I'm leaving this podcast with even more questions. So yes, Caitlin, okay. we've got to have you back. But more urgently, we've got to meet for tequila exactly. in Chicago. Please. All, all this sadness exactly. is said and done. So thank, thank you, you so much for coming on my podcast. Now, where can people find out about you? Well, my company is Decorative Block and Associates, and that's our website as well. And we actually have a little blog on there with some little handy facts and details. And if any of your listeners, you know, want to, you want to gather up some more questions of people need to know about the pills in their upholstery, I'm more than happy to come back and do a 
tech session on how to work around things. So, yeah. I would love that. I also have some metal finish okay. questions, but but we'll we'll save that for yeah, yeah. part two. Um, digging deep, with right? Exactly. Yeah. Well, we're going to put a link to that blog in okay. our show notes. So that way people can head to affordableinteriordesign.com slash podcast, click on the link, go directly to that blog because I okay. want to read it. And I can't wait to have you back. But in the meanwhile, stay safe, warm. Um, yes. You know, all Thanks, Betsy. This has been great. As always, really nice to see you and Yay. catch up. I feel the same. Nice. I feel just the same. All right, everyone. Well, we will be talking to you very soon. And until next week, bye. bye. You've asked for it, and we have answered the call. For years, you've been saying, Betsy, you're talking about all these great design concepts, but we can't visualize them. You're describing the picture that the listener sent in of their problem, and we wish we could see that picture too. After all, a picture is worth a thousand words, and I do my best to describe them, but there's nothing like seeing it for yourself. And that's why Affordable Interior Design, the podcast, now has a YouTube channel. Not only do we have a YouTube channel where you could see recordings and clips of these podcast episodes, we also have an Instagram, a Facebook, and so many other exciting things. You should check it out. Head over to affordableinteriordesign.com slash links. Once again, affordableinteriordesign.com slash L-I-N-K-S links. And when you go there, you will see links to our YouTube page, our Instagram page, our Facebook page, and more. Please check it out, follow and subscribe so you can see everything I'm talking about. A big thank you to our amazing producer, Catherine Heller, to Aton and the MBCR House Band, and to Affordable Interior Design, the sponsor of this podcast and the premier place to get an amazing look on a budget. Check out affordableinteriordesign.com. If you guys love the show, the very best way to support us is by spreading the word. Tell your friends or write us an awesome review on iTunes. So until next week, guys, thanks so much for joining us, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye.